So this week I got a uh, text message from KBRT Radio, and uh, it was Rob Newton asking me to come down and do an interview with Roger Marsh on the um, program that he does every afternoon. And that program airs from three to five. And we did a segment, a half an hour segment on where is God in the midst of tragedy. I put that up on our Facebook page. If you are interacting with people right now in light of the Las Vegas shootings and just trying to kind of be an ambassador of hope and a witness maybe at work or with family members or friends or anywhere else that you may be, I would highly recommend that you listen to that half an hour segment. It's on the Bottom Line Show, um, but I gave you a link there on the church Facebook page. So uh, what I do is I try to talk about where God is when things like this happen. What kind of answers can we glean? What, what can we try to understand in terms of, you know, the mourning of loss and uh, still preaching the hope of Jesus Christ? Um, so that's obviously been heavy on our hearts this um, last Sunday was actually the National Day of Prayer for the Peace of Jerusalem. It was October the 1st, and I thought in light of where we are in the Bible, Jerusalem is going to become a focal point in the book of Revelation. As we move into 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're going to talk about Jerusalem. We do know that Jerusalem is in the news a lot, and uh, we know that this city is a very special city. It is a city that David would relocate his headquarters to. We'll find that in 2 Samuel 5 this Sunday. And it will become really the city of God. It's a name that speaks of the city of peace with Salem at the end or the, the word for peace. And we'll talk about that more, this idea of shalom and the city of God. But I will say to you that Jerusalem's been anything but a city of peace over the centuries. It's been a hub of uh, a lot of controversy and difficulty and uh, trampling underfoot. In fact, uh, there, are, there have been many uh, people groups over the years that have literally trampled Jerusalem underfoot. We can think of Babylon. We can think of Medo-Persia. We can think of the Romans. We can think of uh, different things that have happened over history. And so I want to read this psalm to you because I think it's appropriate for where we are. It's, it's a psalm of David. It's Psalm 122. And it's these words. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Psalm 122, verse 3. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together. And if you ever go there, you'll see it's very compact to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, in ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Now let's turn over to Revelation chapter 11. When we went to Israel in 2006, some of the folks that were on our bus, and there were about three different churches that went together from various Calvary chapels, actually. People were singing Psalm 122 as we were heading for Jerusalem. It was pretty neat uh, to experience that. And as we 
uh, got our first view of Jerusalem. We we're kind of uh, standing on this little elevated platform looking down into the city. It was really incredible to think of all that the city represents. And uh, we, from this fellowship in March of next year, have over 50 people going to Israel. And we will spend several days in Jerusalem. And we will look at the old city of David and we will look at many different things. And we do know that Jerusalem even has a future prophetic significance. And it is going to be in the middle of our account as we look at Revelation 11. We're going to look at an account called the two witnesses. When we open the book of Revelation, I told you, I introduced to you about four different views on how to interpret Revelation. Some of you left that night uh, vowing never to return uh, to Living Truth Christian Fellowship. Some of you were brave enough to come back because your head was hurting because you heard about all these different views like preterism and idealism and, and futurism. And you're like, oh, there's too many isms, man. Well, I will tell you this, Revelation 11 brings up a lot of different viewpoints with all those isms. Is it idealistic? Is it really preteristic? Was it fulfilled in the past at the fall of Jerusalem? What do these two witnesses really represent? Are they Moses and Elijah? Are they Elijah and Enoch? Are they uh, a symbolic representation of the church from the crucifixion and resurrection until the second coming. These are all the views that you can uh, listen to and try to grapple with. I will tell you that uh, I take a very literal view of, of these verses, but I'll say to you that there is some symbolic things to consider, and there's also a lot of application and encouragement, I think, that we will uh, witness in terms of um, this text. I mentioned to you that the temple is mentioned in verse 1. Let's just take a peek. It says, There was given, a, given me a measuring rod, Revelation 11.1, 1, like a staff. And someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now, the temple is the temple that we understand is in Jerusalem. And there was a Solomonic temple, a temple that was built by Solomon. It was David's heart to build the temple, but Solomon actually did the building project. And that was the famous temple, and that was the glory of Israel during that time when the, all the tribes had really come together under one king, under one leader. The nation had been in civil war before then and fractured not long after the reign of Solomon. But a temple is at the center here, and John is told to take something like a measuring rod, like a staff, and he is to rise and measure the temple. But we're never given dimensions of what he measures. And people ask, well, what's the significance of measuring the temple, and what temple is this? Is it the temple that existed at Jesus' time, the rebuilt temple called the Temple of Herod? Is that the temple? Well, that all depends. Because if this book was written after 70 AD, there was no temple. Every stone, one stone upon another, was thrown to the ground in uh, direct proportion to Jesus' prophecy. Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. So if John wrote in AD 95, which most, most futurists believe, there was no temple to measure the temple was raised to the ground. It was actually lit on fire by the Roman army and they started to get the gold in between the stones. 
So that is something that you have to wrestle, wrestle with. In chapter 10, we saw John, he was invited uh, by this one who comes down from heaven to eat that little scroll, remember? And it was said it would be sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And he did go ahead and eat it. And this parallels the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel does the same thing. And then he uh, gets to look at the temple and the corruption around the temple. And then later in chapters 40 through 48 in Ezekiel, there is what's been known as the millennial temple. But there's a debate as to what temple that actually is as well. What temple is this? Is this, here's a question for those of us who lean towards a futurist view. Is this a future rebuilt temple in the actual city of Jerusalem? Well, up until 1967, that would have been unthinkable. That would have been impossible because the Jews were not even back in the land until 1948 and did not recapture control of Jerusalem until 1967. You could not have a temple rebuilt until at least 1967, whatever your view may be. So is there going to be a future temple built in Jerusalem? I think so. I think the Bible indicates that clearly. I think that temple is going to be at the center of a lot of controversy that occurs. If you want to just write down, write down for your notes, Daniel 9.27 says, And he, speaking of the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. We believe that's the last seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years in, he, that is the prince who is to come from verse 26 of Daniel 9, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, some difficult language, but Daniel 12, 11 says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, the midpoint, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, 1,260 days is three and a half years based upon a 30-day month in the Jewish understanding of the days of the months. So whenever you see 1,260 days, we're simply talking about three and a half years. Just another way to say it. 42 months is another way to say it. And Daniel tells us that something's going to happen at the midpoint, and there will be a ceasing of the grain offering and the offerings that take place. Now, here's the question. Will there be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and will there be a reinstitution of the offering system of Israel? There are many Jews today, and I don't want to inflate the numbers, but there are some zealous numbers of Jews that definitely today want to see the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem. Scholars of old couldn't imagine this because Israel wasn't even in the land until 1948. So if you're writing in the early 1900s as a let's say, a Bible commentator on Revelation, you're, you're like, well, how's this going to happen? But now it's very much a possibility. But there's a little caveat, and here's what it is. The Jews, as a uh, peace gesture, gave control to the Temple Mount to the Arabs. So even though they control Jerusalem as a peace gesture, they gave control of the Temple Mount to the Arabs. They don't have control of the Temple Mount. So you go to Jerusalem and you go to the western wall known as the Wailing Wall. And there there's a lot of people, Jewish people, praying with their prayer books and they bob and they're asking God to do a work in their country. And up above, you can hear the Muslim prayers being prayed 
on megaphones, and that's because there are two Muslim shrines on what is known today as the Temple Mount. There's the Dome of the Rock, the one with a golden roof, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is behind the Dome of the Rock. That Al-Aqsa Mosque is considered more holy, and that doesn't get maybe as much attention, but it has a black roof on top of it. Jewish people, uh, those who are zealous to see the temple rebuilt, maybe just for um, Zionistic reasons, that is love of country and that the glory of the country might return with the rebuilding of the temple. They, they believe that it's their duty to get this temple rebuilt. I've mentioned to you that there's a book out called Temple by Bob Cornuke. And some of you have gotten a hold of the book where Bob Cornuke, kind of a modern Indiana Jones, has done some research, archaeology in the area. He's making an argument that the Temple Mount is not up above where the two Muslim shrines exist, where you see them in pictures. But the Temple Mount is actually below the existing considered Temple Mount in the old city of David, and that's where the temple belongs. If that is affirmed by Israeli leaders then they can immediately rebuild the temple because they don't have to deal with Muslim shrines and all the tension that goes with that area. Bob Cornuke in his book just simply argues that he believes that area up above that's considered the um, Temple Mount is too small and was probably simply a Roman fort overlooking the Temple Mount area and uh, he believes this based upon some really good evidence. One of the compelling reasons is the Roman forts were all roughly the same size. And what they had up there is what's called the Fortress of Antonia. And they would have legions of Roman troops in Israel, especially at the feast times, to make sure there was peace and no uprisings against Rome. Well, if you take a corner of the existing quote-unquote Temple Mount, there is no way you could fit very many Roman troops up there. You'd, there'd be room for a handful of troops. What they typically had was whole bunker houses of places where Roman troops would stay, and that's why Bob Cornuke believes the whole existing quote-unquote Temple Mount is, was actually an area for a Roman fort to overlook the temple area which was down below. And even there's... Uh, think references in Josephus to a stairway that led from the fort, the fortress down to the Temple Mount. Very interesting, very compelling, very intriguing. Why? Because this could mean that if they receive this as fact, they could start a building project on a temple in weeks. And so something to keep your eye on. The other reason we believe that there's going to be a temple is because Jesus said these words in Matthew 24, 15. Just write it down for your notes. When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, that's the temple, let the reader understand. And so then he tells people to get out. That's Matthew 24, 15. And then we've all already looked at this, but this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. It says, this, this one, the son of destruction, I'm just reading verse 4, opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So we have multiple scriptures that indicate an end-time scenario with a temple and some sort of attempt by this antichrist figure to go in there 
and cause an abominable thing to occur and thus bring on desolation. So we've looked at some of that already. That's a little bit of recap. But when John is told uh, to take something like a measuring rod or like a staff, uh, someone said, rise and measure the temple. It may be the one who shows up in Revelation 10, who uh, he gets the scroll from, and the altar and those who worship in it. He's told to measure this uh, worship area, if you will. What's the purpose of measuring the area? There's no dimensions given. So some see symbolic significance in this, they say. The act of measuring the temple circumscribes an area that uniquely belongs to God. Another writer says, to measure something means to claim it for yourself. In essence, God is saying, I own this city, I own this temple, and these are my people. Some believe by measuring, he's taking stock of them. Preterists, those who believe this was fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, or take a partial preterist position, which simply means they believe at least part of the book was fulfilled in the past. That's what preterism is, past. They, they believe that the uh, temple is a symbol of the church. They believe the temple is a symbol of the people of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, We are the temple of God, whose temple you are. So there are those who would look at this passage and say, this is simply symbolic for the people of God, God's ownership of them. They belong to me would be the message. And I don't think that you have to take one view exclusively. I think it could mean that on a secondary level. But notice some detail. There's a measuring of the temple of God. Naos is the Greek word, which specifically could refer just to the holy place and holy of holies, not the full compound, if you will. The altar is measured and those who worship in it. It seems to separate the worshipers from the structure. So even though... There are those, and I, and I think there's some good scholars that see this symbolically. I'd say to you, there's some detail in here that makes me question if this is just about the people of God or the church. He's told, leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. If you have an NIV, New King James, it says it's been given to the Gentiles. Uh, that's non-Jews. And they, that is the Gentiles or the nations, will tread underfoot the holy city. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. For how long? For 42 months. How long's that? Three and a half years. So you guys, if you've studied any prophecy, you've heard a lot about the 70th week of Daniel, the, seven, the 70th seven, the last seven years in Daniel 9.27. And three and a half is half of seven. Seven's that number of completion or perfection. And we keep hearing this. We keep hearing of an abomination of desolation at the midpoint, stopping the sacrifice and offering at the midpoint. I believe this is what signals and sparks the great tribulation when the Antichrist defiles the temple and all kinds of things happen from God and uh, I believe uh, his people as well. So they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. But there are others, and I, and I do want to present to you other views, who say that these, these 42 months are not literal, they are symbolic. You might say symbolic of what? 
Well, it gets a little loose here because it, I guess it depends on the interpreter. But they say it's, it's symbolic from the death and resurrection of Jesus until all these things are fulfilled. The Gentiles will trample underfoot the holy city until Jesus returns again. And 42 months is a symbolic number. And the church will be, you know, numbered by God. We'll see in a moment. Protected by God. Used by God. Until the quote-unquote 42 months is over. And until that time is over, the, the people of God will be trampled. Or maybe you could even say the holy city. And we do know this, that from the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70... This went on a lot. There were a lot of wars in the area of Israel and Jerusalem. The Turkish uh, 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 government and, and armies, you can think of the Crusades, where Jerusalem was right at the center, the Holy Land. People were battling for Mother Jerusalem and all of that. This is all history. So there was a lot of war, a lot of tension. Sometimes uh, in, on these locations, a church would be built and then it would become a mosque depending on who was in control. And this is how things went. And so the treading underfoot, you can see quite literally, and I think the 42 months is literal as well, but this is what uh, some people argue it's not. Now, Jesus used this phrase in Luke 21. Let's go over there for a second. Luke 21, taking scripture with scripture, this is what Jesus said. He's He's giving what we know as the Olivet Discourse, and he says these words. This is the only other place where you're going to see this a similar language about uh, them trampling underfoot the holy city. So this is Luke 21, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem, 2120, Jesus speaking, surrounded by armies, then recognize that her de desolation is at hand. Then let those, 2121 of Luke, who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land, wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, verse 24, and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. Write down Revelation 11, because this is the only other place where you're going to see this. Trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until what happens? Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, there are many who see, and, and I can see this in, at least on one level, the fall of Jerusalem here, the Roman armies coming and so forth. But then look at what it says. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars upon the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear at the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. I would submit to you that has not happened. So I do see layers here, or you could say maybe a near-far fulfillment. I think Jesus was answering the immediate question of the apostles. When are these things going to be? When's the temple going to be destroyed? One stone not left upon another. And also Jesus was casting it far into the future when a rebuilt Jerusalem temple would be there. Notice the times of the Gentiles are mentioned. In Romans 11, go over there for a second. We have a debate in the church going on right now. Is there any significance, Romans 11, to the nation of Israel? Should we even care 
about the nation of Israel? Should we be people on the side of the Jews? Do you know the generation that's coming up now is not really thinking biblically. The generation that's coming up, call them millennials right now, are not on the side of Israel. More and more the numbers are they're on the side of the Palestinians and there's not a whole lot of sympathy for the people of Israel. Although if you look at the real evidence, you will see that Israel tries to do everything they can to be at peace with their neighbors and it just ain't working. In Romans 11, I bring this up because there are some people that say God's finished with Israel. We don't have to pay attention to any kind of future rebuilt temple. Don't bother doing tours to Israel because it doesn't matter. God's not going to work in ethnic national Israel again. Uh, Israel is just another way of saying the church or the people of God, and that's it, and that's final. I would beg to differ on many levels. Here's one. Romans 11.25 says, I don't want you, brethren, 11.25, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. And I think a lot of people fall into this category. That a partial hardening has happened to who? Israel. Until, what happens? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, all Israel, I think Israel that exists at this time, will be saved, a remnant, Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is Israel. And this is my covenant with them. God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, not dependent on anybody but him, when I take away their sins. Now, if you've ever studied Romans 9, 10, and 11, you know the question that's being addressed is what happened to Israel? Is God going to work again in the nation of Israel? Paul says, I would... I would even give up, you know, my right to be with Christ for my kinsmen who are my, those who are Israel, those who have the covenants and the promises and whose are the fathers, etc. God is going to work again in national Israel. That's what the Bible teaches. So it is important to keep your eye on that little strip of land where we often call it the holy land or the holy city, Jerusalem. Zechariah 12, as you turn back to Revelation 11, says, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples, and around when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day, Zechariah 12, 2 and 3, that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone, For all the peoples, all who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Zechariah 12, 2 and 3. And so here the temple is at the middle of what is being talked about. I was reading James Hamilton, a commentary on Revelation. He said he sees the book of Revelation in a a chiastic structure. And here's what he sees. He sees that in chapter 11, we're going to see something that looks like the return of Jesus Christ right smack dab in the middle of the book, 22 chapters of Revelation. Revelation 11 signals that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Chapter 11, right in the middle of the book, in chiastic structure, if you will, kind of looking at it from both sides, this is the fulfillment of God's promises. Here's the two witnesses. I will grant, verse 3, Revelation 11, authority to my two witnesses, 
they will prophesy or speak God's word for how long? 1260 days and they will be clothed in what? In sackcloth. 1260 days is how long? Three and a half years. Now, some people ask the question, okay, if you have a last seven years and these guys prophesy for three and a half, which half are they prophesying on? I'm going to argue the second half. Here's why. Because all the stress and tension really happens in the second half of Daniel's 70th week. So that's my position. You can wrestle with it. But anyway, I'm going to grant them authority. They're going to prophesy for three and a half years or the second half, in my view, of Daniel's 70th week. See the word witness there? That's martus in Greek. It's the, uh, the uh, singular form is martyr. It's where we get the idea of martyr. These will be the two martyrs or the two witnesses. Who are they? Every fact in the Bible is confirmed by two to three witnesses. So that's probably why there's two. Who are they? Is it symbolic of the church being a witness in the world from the time Christ died and rose again until the second coming? That's what some people hold. Are these two literal individuals? Who are they? What can we learn about them? Why do they wear sackcloth? Not exactly the most comfortable of clothing. <laughs> Why did the prophets wear sackcloth? Why did John, John wear camel's hair? A sign of mourning, a sign of calling to the culture for repentance. Maybe we need to start dressing in sackcloth. Because this culture is in trouble. I was listening to a radio program and somebody said they were reading a, the head article from 1958. And the lead article was, man writes bad checks, bank fraud. Now today the lead article of newspapers is the next shooting, the next terror thing, the next this, the next that. Violence in the last days, perilous times will come. Man, just look around. Look at what's happened to America from the time that we kicked God out of virtually everything. Well, these two, these are the two, verse 4, Revelation 11, olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, we're going to have four clues or symbols or images to give us some insight on who these may be. The first comes from Zechariah chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. Just write it down. Zechariah 4.14 literally could be translated. These are the two sons of oil. Sons of oil. The two men that are at the center of Zechariah 4 were two men that God used to rebuild the temple when the exiles came back from Babylon. They're called the post-exilic temple builders. You have Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, who was the political leader or the governor. The verse we all know, God says to Zerubbabel, this is the word of the Lord, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's Zechariah 4, 6. So these two men are God's olive trees. They they head up the building project from the standpoint of the spiritual leadership and the governmental leadership. And God says, I will empower you to do this. And the application for believers is as we witness for God, it is not by might, it is not by power, or not by our power, but by what? My spirit, says the Lord. I said on Sunday, I will build my church, Jesus said. Look, 
The way Jesus builds his church is he does it and we're along for the ride. It's his power. It's his gospel. Now, there are people who believe that Enoch and Elijah are the two witnesses. Why? Because there are two men in the Old Testament who did not what? They didn't die. Enoch was walking with God and he was not for God took him. And people said, where's Enoch? I don't know. Where'd he go? I don't know. Right? And then Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. And so people say, based upon Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. Elijah and Enoch got to come back and die just like everybody else, man. However, hold on a second. Wait, that's not the best reasoning. There's going to be a whole generation that's not going to die because at the last trump, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And a lot of us would like to be that generation. We'd like for it to be pre-tribulational rapture. That, we, that way we could avoid a lot of problems and just be caught up with the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? There's going to be a whole generation that doesn't die. By the way, there's also people in the New Testament accounts who died were raised by Jesus and apparently died again. The little 12-year-old girl in the Gospel of Luke. Lazarus, who was dead in the tomb four days. The widow's son at Nain. To our knowledge, they all died, lived again, and died again. That's dying twice. So there are some exceptions to the rule. So don't, get, don't make your view of who the two witnesses might be just based on Hebrews 9.27 because there's a little wiggle room there. You know, that is the normal mode of things. But anyway, so there are people who think that. There are others who hold that this is Moses and Elijah who have come back uh, to be these witnesses. Here's why, verse five. If anyone desires to harm them, and apparently many will, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Now, I... I have prayed for this gift. Uh, you know, every now and then, wouldn't it be cool just to have a, like, you know, there was apparently fire-breathing dragons at one time. So you'd, Now, I know some of your friends have what you might call holy halitosis. And uh, this is not that. Okay, this is. Now, some people think that this is symbolic. And, and, of course, we'd have to argue that it is. However we take this, it seems to be symbolic. Is it the fire of their message? Is it them kind of putting their, their enemies down with the word or the power of their prophecy? Perhaps. It devours their enemies. Verse, uh, middle of five. If anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. Talk about power. Now, this is why you could see that some people would have some problems with taking this too literally, right? This seems to be some sort of symbolic language. In Numbers 16, verse 35, it says, Fire came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense under Moses. In 2 Kings 1, verses 10 through 15, the evil king came to get Elijah. And they, he came with 50 as a captain and Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Zap, boom, see you later. So he sent him another captain of 50 with his, uh, of, with his 50. 
And again, he said, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down. And they were consumed. And the third captain came to Elijah and said, oh, Elijah. He bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said, oh, you're a man of God. I believe it. I do believe in spooks. I do, I do, I do. Sorry, that's just Little Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I believe you're a man of God. Please. There's enough barbecuing that's gone on around here. Right? Well, he got spared. So Elijah had the power to call fire down, even when he made that sacrifice and the fire came and answered, God answered by fire. Moses seemed to have that power to call upon the Lord. So notice something else about these. This is why some people believe they're Moses and Elijah. And by the way, this, this power shows that the God of heaven is the true God. Verse six, these have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. Who did that? Moses. To smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Wow. This is amazing power. They can pray and it won't rain. They have power to turn the waters into blood. To smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So you have uh, the second example. The fire coming down from heaven could speak of divine protection. The third example here comes also from the ministry of Elijah who prayed that it wouldn't rain. 1 Kings 17.1, James 5.17, by the way, says that when he prayed it wouldn't rain, James 5.17, it didn't rain for three years and six months. Hmm. And in the book of Luke, Jesus says, I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years. And six months, that's Luke 4, verse 25. So to our friends that believe this is symbolic, I would say to you, it wasn't symbolic when Elijah prayed. James didn't think it was symbolic, at least, you know, the experience that's being referred to. But there are others who argue, well, these are symbols pulled from the Old Testament. And that's kind of where they come up with this stuff. And so you can see, the God of Israel is the true God. Baal's not the true God. That's why he can stop the rain if he wants to and so forth. You see by the plagues that the plagues not only dealt with Egypt, a type of the world, but also freed people who were in bondage. And Jesus Christ frees us from the bondage of the world, the flesh and the devil. And when they had finished their testimony, verse 7, the beast that comes out of the abyss We'll see him again in chapter 13, verses 1 and 7. We'll make war with them, with the two witnesses. And sadly, he will overcome them and kill them. Now, just when it looks like these guys seem like they cannot be stopped, they're unpenetrable, they can't be killed, nothing can take them out. All of a sudden, this beast rises up out of the abyss. We've seen this abyss, this bottomless pit before. He makes war with them and he's able to overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically, verse 8, the Greek word pneumatikos means spiritually, uh, not necessarily uh, physically here, but um, can, speaks in spiritual nature or typology, is called Sodom. And Egypt, notice, where also their Lord was crucified. Whose Lord was crucified there? 
whoever these two witnesses are. So the two witnesses could be Moses and Elijah, could be Elijah and Enoch, could even represent the church. All three views would be appropriate because Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. But notice Jerusalem is mystically, spiritually called Sodom. What went on in Sodom? A whole lot of unspeakable adultery and sexual sin. And what went on in Egypt? A whole lot of idolatry and bondage of God's people. Why is Jerusalem spiritually referred to as Sodom and Egypt? Why those two cities uh, linked to the holy city? And let me ask you, if God were to look at America today and make a historical comparison of our nation, what do you think he might link us to? I mean, we'd all like to think favorably of the many good things that have happened in America. But today, as we look around, there's cause for concern. The holy city, Jerusalem, has been brought to a low point. Jesus wept over this city. He talked about how this city kills the prophets sent to it over and over and over again. And so now, this this beast rises and he's able, he's given now the power, it's all under God's sovereignty to kill these witnesses and their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city. This is Jerusalem. And those from the peoples, verse nine, and tribes and tongues and nations, so that covers all the world, will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Once these, are, these two witnesses are killed, the, the people of the world don't want them to have a, a proper burial. They don't want them put in a tomb. They want them left out on the street to be picked at and all the horrific things we could imagine the people might do to bodies on the street and animals and so forth. They won't allow a proper burial of these individuals. Psalm 79 is an incredible psalm, and it says these words. I'll tell you what, just turn there. It's just too good. I'm going to run out of time quickly. But uh, Psalm 79, go over there for a second. Psalm 79, verse 1. Keep in mind what we just read. Psalm 79, verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have invaded thine inheritance. They have, Psalm 79.1, defiled thy holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of thy servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of thy godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem. and There was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord? Will thou be angry forever? Will thy jealousy burn like fire? Pour out thy wrath upon the nations which do not know thee and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon thy name for they have devoured Jacob. They've laid waste his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let thy compassion come quickly to meet us for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation." For the glory of thy name and deliver us and forgive our sins for thy name's sake. 
Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of thy servants which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before thee. According to the greatness of thy power, preserve those who are doomed to die. And return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach which, with which they have reproached thee, O Lord. So we, thy people, and the sheep of thy pasture will give thanks to thee forever. To all generations we will tell of thy praise. Would you turn back to Revelation 11 and we'll have to wrap it up. So here's what happens. The people on the earth don't allow these two witnesses to be buried. And those who dwell on the earth, Revelation 11:10, rejoice over them and they make merry. They send gifts to one another because the two prophets that tormented them with their message, that tormented uh, the, those who dwell on the earth, and it could be because of their message or because of what we just read, uh, they, they have something almost like a mock Christmas. They don't allow them to be buried and they start rejoicing. By the way, ironically, this is the only mention in Revelation of rejoicing of the unbelieving world is at the death of the two witnesses who represent God Almighty because they tormented them. How many people say, I don't want a Christian witness in this world because it torments me. I don't want a cross at the 9-11 memorial because it makes my tummy sick when I walk by and have to see the cross. Oh, you poor thing. Poor baby. And now a CBS executive, legal executive, Monday wrote on her Facebook in the wake of the Las Vegas shootings, I am not sympathetic, I'm quoting, to the victims of the mass shooting in Las Vegas. I'm actually not even sympathetic because country music fans often are Republican gun toters. Close quote. I don't care that 59 people died and over 520 are wounded and fighting for their lives. You know why I have no sympathy? Because they're all country music fans and probably Republicans. Well, thank God she got fired. She's a former CBS executive now. Now, some of you, you read stuff like this and you, you say, what do you mean? People sending gifts to one another in the wake of Christians being dead or, or, or these two prophets being dead? Oh, that's so far-fetched. That's unthinkable until you read the newspaper from two days ago. And you go, man, we have some wicked, wicked thoughts and things going on. But here's what happens. After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God, and people like to think that there's television cameras capturing this, came into them. And they, these dead witnesses, stood on their feet and great fear <laughs> fell upon those who were beholding them. Can you imagine maybe flipping channels? All of a sudden, <laughs> Whoa! They're rising. I'm going to get my money back for that present I sent to my buddy because the witnesses are no longer dead. You see, the power of Almighty God ends the holiday and great fear falls upon those beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven and some think that this is the rapture saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud. I should say, those who take this as the church think that this is the rapture. 
and their enemies beheld them. <laughs> Can you imagine a transfixed stare <laughs> as these witnesses go up? Almost like the ascension of Jesus when the apostles are looking up into the heavens and stand gazing up into the heavens, Acts chapter 1. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Signs of judgment. And the rest, perhaps the inhabitants of Jerusalem, perhaps people in the world were terrified. And what did they do? They gave glory to the God of heaven, which indicates to me that judgment hasn't started yet from God. Although this is one of those verses where you can wrestle with this one. To give glory to God seems to be belief. And then finally, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And all God's people said, whoa. <laughs> Father, the question I think every Bible student has to ask is what should we learn from this, this chapter? We haven't even finished it, but what should we learn? And I think what we can see is you love your people. You will empower them to be witnesses. Their message will go out and you will protect it and you will anoint it. And even there will be times when the enemy gets the upper hand, but simply because you allow it, and there is a day of resurrection coming. And a lot of that is captured in this scene, Lord, that is before us. That you are in control. I think that's one of the big lessons here. You are in control. You measure, you empower, you protect, you anoint. You have a certain amount of days that you allow things to occur. And then one day your church will be vindicated your church will rise in the sight of all the world. Jesus will come on the clouds of glory and say to his people, come up here. And we are going to experience a resurrection and a rapture. And it seems that the world will see it take place. And Father, we are just humbled by your great plan and your great love for us. We just, I just want to pray right now over the folks that are here and those who may listen to this later that each of us would be right with you. There's nothing more important than knowing you. There's nothing more important than serving you. Help us, Lord, in our weakness. Strengthen us, give us hope and courage in the midst of our own crises in our day. There was a church shooting a week before the Vegas shooting. A gunman went into a church and killed a lady. There's been so many things going on in our world, Lord, and we just want to say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. But until you come, whatever that day may be, whether it's 100 years, 1,000 years, or 10 years away, or whatever it is, let us occupy until you come. Let us be your witnesses in this world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ and him risen from the dead. If you've not met him as your Savior and Lord, I would just encourage you to run to him, believe on him for your salvation. Trust in him and him alone, his death, his resurrection. He'll, he'll give you new life right now, but you must trust him. So cry out to him if you don't know him. If you do know him, get close to him and be used for his glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand?